0: Good afternoon. Um, Today we have a topic that's close to my heart and I think really important for all of us. We're going to talk about the Amazon union organizing drive and labor organizing generally today. And, you know, my heart was with those people down in Bessemer, Alabama. I'm a retired warehouse worker, former Teamster, working at UPS Um, I've been through a lot of labor fights. We won some, we lost some, probably had the most significant uh, labor victory in the 1997 UPS strike, which really won us benefits that I'm benefiting from today because since then we've had concessionary contracts. So it really helped to have a union. I mean, we caught management many times stealing time or wages from us. Uh, when they violated the contract in terms of work rules or skipping breaks uh, when there was it was busy, we were able to file grievances and get compensation for that. Uh, so it's better working with the union than without a union for sure, even if sometimes you're fighting your own union, you know, challenging the leadership. So I would like to welcome our two guests today. They're Mike Elk and Bill Berry. Mike Gelp is a labor reporter who's been covering the Amazon Union Drive from the beginning down there in Bessemer. He's based in Pittsburgh where he runs the crowdfunded publication Payday Report. He founded that publication while living in Chattanooga in 2016 after being fired as a shop steward in the Union Drive at Politico during the early days of the digital media unionization movement. He's also worked as an advisor on W. Kamal Bell's Emmy award-winning United Shades of America and on the Eva Longoria-produced award-winning documentary, Food Chains. And then our other guests will be Bill Barry, who's been a union organizer or was for more than 20 years in all parts of the countries and in many industries. He was director of the Labor Studies Program at the Community College of Baltimore County in Maryland from 1997 to 2012. With the objective of teaching union skills. After retiring in 2012, he's continued to work as a consultant to various unions, and he will be holding a workshop on internal organizing next Thursday called My Members Don't Want to Do Anything. Yeah, internal organizing, you got to do that first before you take on a big company like Amazon. So each speaker is going to spend about 15 minutes. Mike's going to start with a report on what happened down in Alabama, and then Bill's going to broaden the discussion out, and, and then we'll take questions and answers. So, Mike, the floor is yours. Well, it's uh, so good
1: to be uh, on the show with Ian Zoll. Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm in a public park here. I just got my COVID vaccine, and I couldn't get back in time. Um, the, the fight down in Alabama is a really essential one uh, for us to learn from, and it's going to be discussed for a long time. Uh, you know, I've covered all five of the— Major u- lo- losing union elections in the south over the past decade. I covered Chattanooga in 2014, where we lost by a couple dozen votes uh, at Volkswagen. I covered uh, the Boeing fight in Charleston, where we lost by similar margins almost two to one in uh, 2017. And then I covered the Nissan election in Canton, Mississippi, where they lost in 2017 by two to one margins. And then I covered again in 2019 when uh, UAW tried again at Chattanooga, and they lost by another couple dozen votes. And this one, after each of these defeats in the South, you know, people get so excited about, you know, we're going to go down to the South, there's all this history, of the Civil Rights Movement, we're going to go down there, we're going to win a big one, and it's just going to open the door, it's going to open the floodgates of the South. Uh, unfortunately, that's just not the way the labor movement works. There aren't floodgates, there aren't always easy answers uh, to these things. And what wind up happening in this situation was this warehouse had opened last March uh, under COVID conditions. Uh, the work was very brutal, uh, as is often the work in these kind of facilities. But what winds up happening in these very physically demanding facilities, and I think people lose track of this, is that there's a strong element of ableism uh, in anti-unionism. And I say ableism in the sense of discriminating against the less able-bodied. If you're able to cut it and you're able to do the work right out of high school in an Amazon warehouse in Birmingham, you're making $16.20 an hour with some health insurance and community college assistance. That's not a bad job for somebody right out of high school, especially if you're looking. You know, the community college assistance programs do help pay a fair amount. And so, you know, if you're working overtime, you're easily making forty fifty thousand dollars $50,000 a year, which is very livable in a city like Birmingham. And so there becomes but it comes at a cost to your body you know the average amazon picker is walking 12 miles a day on average right so while um you know it is easy to get these jobs it's tough to keep them and the people that stick around there becomes this team mentality and i think this is important to bring up because in defeating the union drive at volkswagen it wasn't just that they used coercion they used threats they used a mix of threats with a mix of um lollipops, essentially, is what we would say in the labor movement. You know, they would um, say, oh, well, you know, we we'll, you know, we're going to improve things and we're on a team here. And look, we brought in, you know, the upper management at the plant is entirely white, but to bust the union, they brought in black management. So they'll do things like that uh, to, to help muddy the waters. And when we were interviewing workers, a lot of the workers we were interviewing, they were young black folks. This was a pretty good job. A lot of them had worked in fast food. Some were right out of high school and this was twice what they could make make, working in fast food, and not just twice what you could make, you know, Amazon's a company that's big enough that you think you can maybe move up the ladder a little bit, you know, become a manager, become some sort of lead, Uh, you know, get trained in something, you know, Amazon's a big company with lots of opportunities for folks to move up. It's not like working a dead-end fast food job where, you know, you become the manager, you know, there's, there's somewhat of a path. And, you know, not just that, but You know, it becomes such a high turnover workforce that a lot of the folks we interviewed, they didn't hate unions. They just knew very little about unions. And they had been told by management, hey, look, we listen to you. We listen to you guys. You know, we brought in young black management. We're shaking things up. We heard you. And there's this thing that union busters talk about, uh, HR professionals talk about, called the Hawthorne effect. That when workers feel like they're being monitored or observed. They're, they're encouraged. And so these meetings, you know, they, you know we, in the left press, we talk about them as being very coercive. They're not as coercive as much as they are slick, And that what will wind up happening is they'll bring in a young black guy, everybody will get a break, you know, there'll be pizza there. They'll bring in a young black guy, and he'll say things like, have you guys ever really read about this UFCW corruption case? You ever really think about where your union dues are going? And this is always a thing that will kill unions, and I, I always bring this up. You know, I come out of the UE, and my father's actually the elected director of organization, Bill Berry, comes out of the UE. Um, and in the UE, at the top of a lot of our pamphlets, when we're going uh, handing out stuff, we, we, we brag about the fact that nobody in the UE makes above 70000 Because in the UE, you're supposed to feel like a worker, not feel for a worker. And, you know, you look at a lot of these big business unions, you know, you have folks that are making two, three $300,000 a year. As union staffers, and, you know, when you show this to, to members on the shop floor and they start saying, am I really going to be subsidizing that lifestyle? Am I going to be subsidizing these crimes? A lot of folks I talked to, including a young guy who was 19, he had an aha moment where he's like, do I really want to be paying 800 bucks a year to a corrupt union like the UFCW, which is the parent union of RWDSU. And so these meetings, they combine and they also do this thing that's really, I think the, the kind of killer line is, Hey, look i get it you might think things might this is a union buster line you might think things get better for you under a union contract they might but it could also get worse everybody starts over again that's always a classic line everybody starts over again and so you throw in this mix to kids who are you know not kids you know they're, they're my age they're in their 30s and they've been struggling working low-wage jobs and god you want to bring in this union give them 800 bucks a year to go to some corrupt union official and screw this up and then on top of that what they did that was particularly egregious is um, Amazon, this is what the Washington Post FOIA document showed, Amazon got the Postal Service to install a postal box right in front of the plant gate and told people as they were leaving, here, take a bow, you know, go vote no. And then not just take a bow, but why don't you put on these, uh, they have lanyards, why don't you put on these vote no pins on your lanyards, right? Like, uh, it reminded me of that scene from Office Space where they go to TGIF Fridays and have to wear all the flare, you know, you see all these... And I'd ask workers, why are you wearing that? Oh, you know, the boss came up and, you know, this young black guy, and, and they're, they're, they're doing one-on-ones where they're sending around these young black man consultants. What didn't you like? Oh, you wanted that raise? I hope you get the raise. We're starting over. We're a team here. And the folks that are for the union, they're folks that physically couldn't cut it on our team. And there's a there, there becomes a very strong sense of ableism in these campaigns, and I can't underestimate that enough. And I say this as a disabled American, that we in the labor movement, need to think much more intersectionally about disability rights issues because they always play a role in campaigns you know it's always the management paints the guys who can't do the jobs as the lazy guys you know the unions just gonna protect them and so what winds up happening and I, I you know Danny Glover once referred to it this way it becomes like a tent revival uh, you know this uh, come back to the old-time religion we got it together you know we love you again you um, My friend Ann Feeney, the folk singer who recently passed, used to say that it's a lot like, um, and Anne, in addition to being a folk singer, spent 17 years representing domestic violence survivors, which a lot of people don't realize. I can't imagine what that must have been like to be abused, and all of a sudden Anne Feeney's your lawyer. I mean, that must have been exciting. But I digress. But Annie used to say that um, an anti-union campaign is a lot like an alcoholic husband whose wife's getting ready to leave him. She knows he might hit. But he's not leading with, I'm going to hit you. He's leading with, oh, look, I'm gonna." there's going to be steaks in the fridge every night. I'm going to buy you flowers. And that's what they did at Amazon. The threat was always in the background. And to some of the troublemakers, they did threaten that. But to the folks that were kind of in between, you know, the in-between folks said, oh, you know, I'm not one of the troublemakers. I don't want to screw this up, you know. And look, they're listening to us. And, you know, this one woman, Jennifer Bates, brought up something interesting, which is a lot of these young black guys... They never had a senior manager come in and say, hey, to one-on-one captive audience meeting. You know, they didn't necessarily see these meetings as coercive, a lot of the workers. We talked to a 19-year-old kid. He said, no, I thought it was pretty cool, man. You know, they were just looking out for us. You know, they were telling us, you know, they were providing us information, you know. And I think this gets to something I think Bill certainly agrees with, is I really hope this Amazon fight opens up a discussion about the need for union education in high school civics courses. People should know much more about collective bargaining agreements in high school. You know, growing up here in Pittsburgh, we weren't taught the ins and outs of collective bargaining agreements, but we were taught the history of this town and the role of unions. And that's good, but we need much more than that. And I think, I think what's interesting, I talked with Saladin Mohammed of the Southern Workers' Assembly is, it's easy to call this a defeat, but the real defeat would be is that we didn't continue to mobilize. There were Amazon actions in 50 cities across the country. And I went to the one here in Pittsburgh, and um, you you might know him from the Teamsters. uh, Mel Packer was there. And Mel was saying, you know, we're going to open up a warehouse in Lawrenceville. We better be out there, you know, leafleting. So folks in their own communities have organized these solidarity events. There was so much energy, so much excitement. And it got folks thinking about how they could organize in their own communities, right? And organizing a 6,000-person warehouse is is almost impossible in many ways. Uh, My dad, who's the director of organization at the UE, was saying, that the UE, if the UE was looking at a thousand person shop, it would take this UE six months to figure out whether or not they could even organize it before they could really build something, right? And right here, what happened is they opened the shop. They didn't have very many workers when they opened. Then they were expanding. They hired on a bunch of workers. And they thought they could pull a quick hot shop campaign. And you don't win with quick hot shop campaigns, only long term organizing. And, you know, in a winning union campaign, the union vote is a formality because people already feel like they're part of the union. The union's been advocating for them. The union's been petitioning the boss. The union's been doing things. The union's been, I, you know, I cover a bunch of minority unions at Nissan and at Mercedes. And the one thing I hear that minority unions do really well is cut down on sexual harassment because it becomes a support network for women that want to come in. And so they didn't do any of that organizing. They were just sort of hoping people were upset about COVID. There's all this energy. Let's see if we can just, you know, forth and go it and see if we can pull it off. And it was disastrous. But that's not to say that we didn't learn a lot. I think the fact that the media, both internationally and nationally, paid this so much attention is a testament to how excited readers and workers are about this. Uh, and you look at these actions that people held across the country, powerful, powerful actions uh, that really... Uh, are going to mobilize folks for a long time to come. I mean, for a whole generation, this is the first time they've ever seen a union campaign up close on this level. I mean, I've covered a ton of them. I've never seen, I mean, the Chattanooga Volkswagen campaigns were big deals with international attention. They didn't get a tenth of the media that this campaign got. And so you have a whole generation of folks, and you have a Democratic president who's sympathetic towards labor and made a speech that was important about, you know, the rights to organize. Unfortunately, that speech came five weeks into voting, and most folks had already cast ballots by then. So, unfortunately, it didn't have as big of an effect. But it's focused a national conversation on organizing, on the barriers to organizing, and there are ways to build power from this. I just worry if we focus too much on what the company did and not on what we could do different, that we won't learn the lessons we need to learn as
0: a labor movement. okay mike thank you um let's get bill's perspective here and then we'll uh, go <laughs> the question and answer
2: well it certainly brought back i, I was going to say if anybody hasn't seen one of these uh, danger educated union member t-shirts we got uh had them for years here so look a little uh, mike's discussion brought back a lot of memories because I was one of the first organizers in the South for the UE, we were in North Carolina, and they had split up their shops—big Northern shops—in small places. So they had one in Salem, one in Charlotte, one in Greenville, South Carolina. And the techniques they used were exactly what Mike said—they were good cop, bad cop—and they would go and they would plead, "Give us another chance." We didn't—we didn't know that this was a problem, and. The other thing, which is very important, as he talked about it, and I mentioned this with my family earlier today. For many of the people at Amazon, it's, their wages are doubled and they're working the overtime, and they get these benefits and it's huge. And I did organizing, for example, on Maryland's Eastern Shore, where the conditions were terrible. It was a French luggage company. But the people working in there had worked in sewing shops on the Eastern Shore that literally had dirt floors. And so they have a building, not only with a cement floor, but with air conditioning. And they thought they had gone to heaven. What do I need a union for? So obviously, when organizers get together, we tell all these uh, stories. There have been references in a couple of the discussions in the newspapers and and different articles. And there's a huge spurt in the last 24 hours. Uh, Two organizers, Rand Wilson and um, I put one, a long one out, which is in, in these times. There's the lead story the New York Times. is about the election. The lead story on the business page is interviews with uh, former organizers like uh, Richard Bensinger. They often recommend this book, Marty Levitt's Confessions of a Union Buster. And everybody who's in a campaign should read it. Um, I've actually got a video of a presentation that he made. He was a guy who was a union buster who then saw the light and came back and told but he was at a UE staff meeting about how to do it. But let me put this in a bigger context than the frame, but this is the hugest event for the labor movement in the United States in many, many years. It's not only the biggest unit of 6,000 people and you just don't find workplaces like that anymore. One of the things which industrial companies have done is that they find it's easier to defeat unions by having smaller shops, because you have such a huge shop, you become just a name. You consider yourself just a name, and the union looks like it's a much more valuable help to you. Um, it's the biggest, baddest anti-union company in the world, and what we have seen—and I said I have a book out called a booklet out called Organizing in the Pandemic—the the industrial world, the world of work, is going to be very different when this COVID is over and Amazon has profited from it enormously. And they have replaced all the retail stores, many of which were represented by the uh, retail wholesale workers. And it's uh, all drive uh, delivery now. They are enormous and they're growing and their wealth is growing. And so if we don't get them, we're gonna be in big trouble as a union movement. I mean, the union movement quite frankly is in big trouble already. And it's gone from uh, 37% of the workforce in the late 1950s down to about 6% now. And it has an impact on everybody because all the conditions that we used to take for granted in our union contracts were then passed along to non-union people. Everybody had fully paid family health insurance. Everybody had pensions, everybody had vacations, everybody had paid holidays, and that's all gone. Uh, Mike talked about teaching uh, union history in the high schools. The corporations are so smart that they get themselves on the state boards of education, they control textbooks, so that there's not a whisper of anything involving a union. And in some areas, like Pittsburgh, they've got an active labor history association, but other places they don't. And so you come in there and and people in Amazon are right. The other thing about Amazon campaign was that it was worker driven. Because a lot of times when you do organizing, the organizer will go around and start talking to people, wouldn't you like a union this place, along with many other Amazon facilities, just exploded. And it grew a campaign uh, in an area which was a heavily minority population. One of the things I talk about in, uh, in my booklet is that all of the civil rights protests the Black Lives Matter, need to be also moved off the street and into our workplaces. And that's what the people did down in Bessemer. And it's huge. Uh, One of the interesting statistics is that only about 60%, as far as I can see, of the people who were in the shop actually voted. So you had a large, large number of workers who went through the union campaign, who went through the captive audience meetings, and who just said, Oh, I don't know. I don't want to uh, I don't want to do it. So the consequences of it are really important because it's going to hopefully focus union officers on the importance of new organizing and not just in Bessemer but everywhere. Because if we don't get out and organize and year after year after year, we see the numbers slide. And most of the officers who are in office now are not from an organizing background. They're from what we call a servicing background. That is, they've taken care of the members and kind of moved up the ranks. And a lot of unions at different levels have kind of a machine, and they move up there. New organizing is altogether different. It's a whole different set of skills. It's a whole different mentality. And we got to do it. And the Amazon workers in Bessemer said, we want to do it. The fact that they lost the election, this thing, door number one is the union is going to use all the legal resources to kind of stay within the framework. And one of the great things about labor history is you see in the 1930s how the unions are brought under control by the National Labor Relations Board. Because in the early 1930s, there was an epidemic of sit down strikes. And what workers would do is they say, we're not going to worry about Labor board election, we're going to take over the plant and we want union recognition. And that is something which is very different from a lot of the protests we've seen in the past year or so. A lot of times there are work stoppages, and uh, Mike has a payday report, has a strike follower. And uh, there are hundreds and hundreds of strikes that he has listed on his uh, webpage. And they're all over conditions, they're over hazard pay, they're over social distancing, not one of them, almost not one, says we want union recognition. We want an organization that's going to be here after this COVID is done that we can build and it will protect us, not just on a single issue, not just now, but down the road into the future. And so the Bessemer thing was a huge opportunity. It's not a loss. The fact that 6,000 members or 6,000 people, workers, got themselves together to organize in a very, very non-union area is a huge step forward. The real key is now what? Door number one is some people are saying, oh, well, you know, you've got to trust Joe Biden, the Democratic Party. The law is what's affecting us. And the law lets them do this. And the law lets them do that. We need to pass this PRO Act. And the PRO Act is a legislation which is now in the federal government, uh, past the House, which would eliminate, for example, captive audience meetings, would speed up elections and stuff like that. We'll see if it gets through the Senate, we'll see where it goes. Because 10, 12 years ago when Obama was first elected with a huge majority, popular personalities and significant majorities in the House and Senate, it absolutely went nowhere. That there's not a move by the Democratic Party leadership to expand unionism and to pass laws that are gonna get people go. Um, The other thing is that when the... So what happened in the 30s was the workers started taking over the plants and the Roosevelt administration said, well, let's see what we can do to kind of cool this down. So they created the National Labor Relations Board and said for the first time, workers have the right to bargain collectively, but they set up a structure which people still use today. And it can be very, very dangerous. I assume that the union officers at the retail wholesale are going to appeal this election. The hearings will go on for years, could potentially five, six, seven years. One danger is that that's where their attention goes. Their next real campaign should be yesterday in the shop, convincing all the people who voted no or who didn't vote that they made a mistake and go from there and they need to take organizers and move them down into Bessemer to stay. Uh, For example, when you see a worker, a guy peeing in a bottle because he hasn't got time to go to a bathroom, union committee members should take one of those guys who was wearing the non-union lanyards and go over to him and say, see, this is what you got us. There's stories about women in the plants buying suppositories of some sort so they can pee as they're driving if their delivery bands were right. So start the campaign. You didn't lose. Whenever we had a campaign the day after, it, I would always sit down and debrief. What did we do wrong? What did we do right? What can we do better next time? And it's a lot like a football team. They lose or win. They watch this, the film the next day and they figure we're not going to do this again. Building in, as Mike said, a lot of other people, the solidarity movement here was fine. We had almost no support from the institutional union movement. There's a bunch of us just outside, uh, different groups, uh, political groups were out standing in front of the Amazon warehouses uh, down at what was one time the biggest steel mill in the world, Sparrows Point. So this can be a real turning point for the union movement in this country if we make it that way. But sitting back and writing commentaries and doing things, not enough. We've got to get out. Unions need to be visible. They need to be aggressively organizing. One of the things I always tell people is that you need to have your union insignia on at all times. I was talking to a guy who came by the house here uh, recently to work on our phone line. Uh, He works for Verizon, but he had a CWA shirt on with the union insignia. I've done some work for the transit workers. They negotiate to have the union patch on their uniforms. But everybody should do it and you should wear them when you go to the supermarket, because you will or shopping or wherever you are, because it creates conversation, it builds a culture of unionism. Because we don't have a union movement in this country. There's almost no Labor Day parades, no kinds of activities. And so this campaign um, at Bessemer has the potential to be a big start if we make it that way. And if everybody who's listening to this program will go out and say to five friends, come on, we got to build a union movement. If they say, I'm working in a non-union place, I'm going to start organizing. We have to do it. But nobody else is going to do it for us. One of the dangers, and I'm finish up here, is that a guy like Trump comes along and says, you don't have to do anything. I will take care of everything for you. And it's what I call the savior mentality. And a lot of union members are involved in what we call the servicing model unionism, where they figure they pay dues, they're buying mm-hmm. a service, somebody else is going to take care of their problems. We've got to get rid of that internally and go back and organize. But focusing on new organizing, recognizing that this is not a one-time thing, this is not an Amazon thing, this is a 25 or 30-year decline, that we have done nothing to stop. And so we've got to use this as an opportunity to pivot, and to go after this and make it happen, OK? Thanks.
0: OK, thank you. Uh, when you talked about wearing your you know, union thing, I, I generally do that. And the Teamster logo and color, a lot of people think I'm the police. Huh. They ask me for directions. They ask me for help. And I say, no, no, I'm a Teamster. And then the next question is, what's a Teamster?
2: Well, that's right. And then the answer
0: is it's it's a union, you know, for truckers and warehouse workers. And the next question is, what's a union? So you know, the idea that we need to get education about unions and
2: get people talking
0: about it, and we all have a role in that, you know, really strikes home to me.
2: Just the conversations you just had there is a great opportunity for you, wherever you are, sitting on the street corner in the sewer, to talk about what it is to have a union because people don't know. And I think it's so important. We have to do it, each of us, not somebody else, not a paid organizer necessarily. But the union movement needs to start from the very bottom, which is where we are.
1: And I think I think it's just not also a question of education. I think it's also a question of media. Uh, If we look at, you were bringing up the issue of commentary. If we look at. so much, I mean, of of the commentary on the left about unions and the writing even being done by union organizers, which I, as a labor reporter who's always been a full-time labor reporter, I take issue with. I mean, you can either work for a union or you can cover them. You can't really do both objectively. And, uh, you know, if you look at so much of the coverage of the commentary on the left, particularly the intellectual left, uh, it doesn't really have worker voice in it. You know, we got yelled at because we went out into a parking lot of Amazon and we just started interviewing random workers and we interviewed four anti-union workers on camera. And if you watch the tape, none of these people looked like they were bad people per se. They weren't some cartoonish yeah, not, villain. Yeah.
2: Right. They were but confused I, people, you know. I think it's important. There are no union newspapers. There's no Rush Limbaugh labor runs, you know, talk radio kind of stuff all of these things are things that the union movement has let go and and the you see the background like the Koch brothers how they study this stuff how they plant roger ailes creates fox news they have a strategy that looks ahead a year five years ten years and we don't have that we need to do it and we not do not need to trust somebody else to figure out how we need to do it ourselves
1: yeah. And I think that's what that what we really need to move towards is is a new system. at you Because know, I always hear people, you know, we run a crowdfunded publication. We bring in about $100,000 a year directly from our readers. It's me and another woman. And we track about 1,200 strikes a year. And anybody who wants to donate, then go to paydayreport.com. Uh, paydayreport.com. There's a ton of stuff. on yeah, i I I appreciate it. I know you have. <laughs> but we're funded, you know. You know, like, for instance... You know, we're able to cover unions critically because, for instance, we have a guy emailed me yesterday. He's a retired, um, uh, I forget, marine engineer who was working on a boat. You know, he pays us 35 bucks a month. We can do that because we're not necessarily taking money from unions. And if you look at so much of our infrastructure of the communications, it's heavily union-driven, even in the labor studies programs, even elsewhere. And what we need is independent reporting, independent labor reporting. And I think now with crowdfunding and these other things, you know, I always hear people complain about the corporate media. And it's like, okay, well, let's go out and build something. Yeah. You know, let's build alternative media. And I think I think we need to have a discussion about that because, look, labor stories sell. I mean, there was I've never seen a union election like we were sitting at home watching MSNBC and MSNBC was doing, you know, hourly updates from the picket line. Right. Of This is what we know so far. That's where this union election is at. And let's not I mean, you know, Biden is not necessarily our friend, but he did elevate the struggle in a big way. In a way that had political meaning behind it. And I think in the next couple of days, it's gonna be interesting to see what the left does and what the Biden administration does. I mean, what is he gonna say when he's asked about this? You know?
2: Well, I think it's also gonna be interesting to see what the union does. Are they gonna yeah. to- to the organizing campaign? Or are they going to turn it over to the lawyers run for labor practices and kind of let the thing go? I mean, one of the questions has been brought up and Mike, you covered a little bit of it. And there was a, a guy from Baltimore, where I live, uh, who went down there uh, from the Real News Network. But it, it looked like the union didn't have a huge committee structure inside the, no. the warehouse. And one of the things that happens, particularly with younger people, is they start believing that all you need is social media. You know, all I need to do is text you or Twitter you or something like that. And uh, that's communication. And it's not. And you need to have those issues and you break down a warehouse. I mean the organizing the history, for example, at the General Motors plant, Flint, Michigan, when they had the sit down strike. The issue was not the money, it was not the bet, it was the speed of the assembly line. And that is exactly what the issue in Amazon is or could have been. Because that's an issue where if they come and a guy comes around and says, we hear you now, we're going to take care of things, you say, okay, slow down the line now, show me, don't promise me, show me. And that the kind of generation that we always started doing inside the shops um, to, and it brings people in, it makes it exciting. It changes the whole dynamic in the workplace. Because then the discussion is about our issues, It's not about what I. I guess I'm too old now. I, I use the term LSD, and half the time I had younger students say, "Well, what's that?" And it's LSD or the big yeah, tell you lack of work strike induced. and dues, uh, and you have to turn that around as the organizer because those are company issues, and that's what you hear in the meetings and that's what you get in the leaflets and on the reports And it was really funny that I saw the complaint that Amazon would put stuff up in the bathrooms. And that was one of my earliest organizing techniques. I would give men and women a pile of leaflets and a roll of scotch tape in the morning. I would say, okay, go in inside of every door on the stall. So when somebody sits down, and they shut the door, they're looking right at the union leaflet. Yeah.
0: yeah you talk about the committee structure i've seen a number of people um and some union organizers we know mention that as a weakness of the of the drive as mike said it was a what do they call it a hot spot hot, uh, shot.
2: hot, hot shot. shot
0: election they thought they could jump on amazon before it yeah. was ready and uh somebody just put in the uh, chat that the person election should not be to Find out if the workers want a union, but to demonstrate that a majority of the unions are already, the workers already organized.
2: Right, that's a good um, idea. Yeah.
0: And related to that, one of the comments I read was the organizing focused on the plant gates. They didn't do home visits, where they could have their own private conversation with workers outside the eyes of the bosses. So I wondered what y'all thought about that.
1: Well, yeah, I think they, there was some concern <laughs> because of COVID about doing home visits. But I also know that in Chattanooga, uh, the first time, as well as elsewhere, there's some weird hesitancy in the South of people going to people's homes, particularly. You know, it's a very big gun culture there, and there's some weird hesitancy. But I I know in winning campaigns in the South, they do do home visits. But again, you know, like I read Jane McAlevey's critique, which I have my own issues with. Um, You know, I don't know how you write a 2,000-word critique and don't quote a single worker, but that's, I digress. Um, you, we can get into all this technicality of did they do house visits, how big was the bargaining unit. The fact is, they didn't do the preparation needed to start feeling like a union, to start acting like a union, to start standing up for co-workers facing discipline, to start you know standing yeah. up to bosses that are doing so. They didn't do that work. And when you don't do that work, it's tough to identify. This isn't a hot shop where maybe... You know, it's a hundred people and you know you know you have a solid forty people and you have to go out and get another twenty people. This was a huge factory, and in these kind of factories, people sociologically tend to move in big waves.
2: Well, I think I would just say I was a huge advocate of home visits, even in the South. And often you would follow it up where someone signed a card, you would go see them, you call them up and say, i to make an appointment and you go around. But I spent a lot of time. I think it's hugely important because you develop that personal relationship with individuals. Uh, obviously, when you have 6,000 people, you got to have a staff of 500 to cover it. And it would mean borrowing every organizer from every union to come down and do this. And that's one of the problems. Without a union movement in this country, unions don't help each other out, and there's no resources for people to do it. Um, I think it's very, very important, but I think what Mike said is exactly right. You you start acting in the workplace like a union, even before you have the election, you start standing up for people, uh, and there, it's just a constant when you, uh, I'm a little bit like some of the other people, I have not been to Birmingham, so, our best one rather, can't speak firsthand. But uh, the organizing campaigns, the people we talked here at the Amazon warehouse, the conditions are terrible. You have a TOT, a time off task, and that can include going too long in the bathroom or too long to go to lunch or something like that. And those are the shop floor day to day issues that the union will fight for. And they need to start before you have the election. It's a great campaign as you go into an election if that's what you decide you have to do.
0: So we have a question from Gary Brown. How do you convince scared employees to strike? That's the first question. And two, what do employees who want to strike do if most of the other employees
2: vote not to? (laughs) Okay. Well, I would say to Gary, I want to show you my favorite word, uh, congruence. And congruence is a, a term that I borrowed from a guy named Edward Schneiderman, who was pioneer in suicide prevention. And what he said, in it, when you see congruence, it means that you only have two choices, and both of them are bad. Either take a lousy contract or go on strike. And I think that for people to say we have the only two choices we have are to take a shitty contract or go on strike, that's not true. You need to look at leverage. How can you force that boss to do what he doesn't want to do? And it can be picketing, it can be boycotting, it can be slowdowns, confusing all the time. Lots of things which come before a strike. And most contractors settle without strikes. Um, and the answer is how do you convince scared employees to strike? The answer is you don't. People have to feel that that's what they want to do. But they have to understand that there is a wide range of pressure that you can put on management. And it's become more complicated now, uh, certainly in a place like Amazon. Uh, well, Amazon is unusual because you know who owns it. If you get Jeff Bezos to say yes, you're all right. Um, a lot of companies are now owned by these venture capital firms. You don't know where they are. And there's some mailbox in, in the Cayman Islands. And so the research. To create this leverage as an alternative to a strike is very, very important. And what you do if you want to strike, and most of the employees not to, you don't go out because you can't have a partial strike. You split your local and you won't be successful. Mm-hmm. And what will happen is the people who go out and strike, the strong-need people, uh, won't come back. And so you need to sit and say, what do we do to pressure this company to do what we want them to do to give us what we deserve.
0: Yeah, I have a question that uh, came up from some of the commentary I read. Uh, you know, in, in in the Teamsters, you know, we're organized at UPS, biggest private company that's got a union. And we got FedEx. And FedEx is regulated like an airline. So you can't uh, you can't organize hub by hub. you got to have a nationwide oh, right. election. But some people are saying in this commentary, the only way you can uh, get a union in Amazon is to have a nationwide election. And I don't know if that makes sense because, you know, even 6,000 is a lot. But, you know, you can organize hub by hub. That's how the Teamsters, I know, organize the trucking industry.
2: Well, you know, Jimmy the Hoffman was a great organizer for whatever problems he had. Because in the 1930s, he figured that out. And the drivers, the over the road drivers go hub to hub. And if they go to a pub and they weren't, they couldn't unload anything. He just basically forced that Teamster National Agreement. And unfortunately, his successors have let it slide. Um, yes, I think organizing a company like uh, FedEx nationwide is something you have to do. Same with Verizon Wireless. We're doing some work here. You can't go one store at a time. And it's enormous resources and enormous vision. But if we don't do it, we're not going to be here. We don't have a choice.
0: Eric Gray asks, given this conversation, would it be better to fight for universal collective bargaining as opposed to a living wage?
2: I'm not sure what he means by universal collective bargaining.
0: Maybe you know the easier uh, way are getting recognized under the Pro Act that you oh, mentioned right, earlier versus the wage. Probably. I mean, obviously, I say, why are they opposed? To you? Why can't you have both?
2: Well, I think obviously the solution is that uh, how should we elect the president of the United States? Then we wouldn't be having this discussion, right? Howie. <laughs>
0: I, I didn't hear all that, but you said if I was president, we'd be having no, a
2: different I said problem is, if you had were been elected president, we wouldn't be having this discussion. We'd be done. I think a lot of people have very, very dreamlike schemes, like, oh, there'll be sectoral bargaining and, and everybody will be forced to come. I mean, who's going to make them come to the table? I saw one really ridiculous, I'm updating my. Uh, this book called uh, Organizing During the Pandemic. And I do it only online because I keep changing But I saw a, a labor commentator whose name I won't mention. His suggestion is that the federal government subsidize union organizing. And I about fell over. You know, the chances of that happening are non existent. I mean, it is an absolute dream. And we need to be realistic. We have let unionism slide in this country really since the 1940s. And there are all kinds of reasons, but that's why labor history is so important. And there is not a miracle solution, there is not a savior. And the, the Congress is not going to make this happen for us. We have to make it happen for ourselves the way unions were originally created. And I always talk about George Pulis and nine brave little shoemakers. The first anti-union movement was trials of, of uh, shoemakers in Boston and Philadelphia in 1806 but You organized a union, you were a criminal. You were going to be put in jail. And these guys went out and did it anyway. And we've got to have that attitude. Yeah. For the record, I I think you're right.
0: You know. I wouldn't be president, I mean, we'd be much further down the road if I got elected president because the labor movement would be a much stronger position. I mean, it's like you don't get the union recognized until you got the union organized. Same thing, you don't get a progressive president, the progressive movement in politics is organized and has the strength. So
2: one of the things that's really interesting is, uh, if, if it comes to my mind now, tough companies like. Bethlehem, Steele, and Ford Motor got organized because the government said, if you don't recognize or deal with the union, you're not going to get any government contracts. And so they did, because this was the beginning of World War II, and they knew that they were going to get it. But if you look at uh, a new book out, a local guy here, Alec Piel, has a book called Fulfillment, which is about a history of Amazon's impact, I think. But they are enormous government contractors. And if you were to say to them you violate the law, you're not going to use a one the contract. They would behave no differently. But that again, it's a fantasy. Because I don't see the president, I don't see Joe Biden doing that.
0: Yeah, the guy that asked about universal collective bargaining, Eric Gray, is is talking about what they have in Scandinavia, which I guess is sectoral bargaining, where the whole industry bar- right. bargains. Um, I think that's pretty. Yeah, there,
2: there's his okay. point. Okay, I see it. Thank you, Eric. Uh, that's a whole different social structure in those countries. Though. Uh, you know, why do they have uh, national health care and we don't? There's uh, just all sorts of, um, it's a whole different structure we don't have. And you want to get politically active and make it happen in this country, great. It's important. But until that happens, uh, workers in their workplaces, whether the some
0: self-dension organize. And their union density is like seventy percent, and we're down at six percent in the private
2: sector. So Yeah. Hey Mike. Uh, <laughs> I don't organize anybody, Mike Eisenscher. Yeah, um,
0: Mike yeah. Eisenscher. Uh, the importance of the Pro Act is that it will change the terrain on which organizing takes place.
2: We'll see. Right. Uh, first of all, it's gotta pass i has got to pass court challenges and stuff like that. Uh, I just think um, that there, and I know I've, I've had this discussion with Mike about that, that, uh, the uh, Amazon campaign about the importance of community work being inside the shop, uh, regardless of the world, that uh, people, not ICE, but other people looking for a solutions solution, like, oh, we we'll change the law and everything. We uh, We'll see could be a help, but it passed and signed and implemented at the time. Rose Roby
0: asks, the gig economy is another barrier to unionizing. Yes, yes. It's an extremely alienated relationship to one's own labor. No worker protections and none of the benefits of, quote, being your own boss, unquote, which is what it's sold as, but that's an illusion. How does one deal with the rise of the green economy with alienated contract employees in going forward and building the union movement?
1: Well, I think this gets back to another need to to organize. And sorry if I've been off. Uh, My my phone's actually dying and I'm out. I was trying to charge it. Um, I think this gets more to the need to have a more non-traditional labor movement, to have a labor movement that organizes around communities, that's tied much deeper into the framework of communities, uh, where people are going to worker centers, where people are getting help. Uh, because, you know, these the days of these huge union elections where you win 6,000 workers are over. Uh, I mean, you know, they might happen again someday, but it's a very big uptick, and we really have to start at the bottom.
2: I also think one of the dangers at, in her that she raises in her question really good, that too many of the union officers and organizers are locked into the structure about the labor board. And technically, legally, under the law, the gig workers are not, quote, employees. And it's a dangerous situation. They're not covered by workers' compensation. They're not getting overtime. There's all kinds of things. But they can organize a union and bargain. You may don't, not don't have the pro act or the legal protections, but you have that strength. And it's just a question. It's a complicated organizing because nobody has a common workplace. You're scattered all over. Um, people are fluid coming in and out of the gig workforce and stuff and so it's a very, very complicated situation. One of the things that would make it easier to not uh, organize gig employees is if the stable workforce were back at 40% or 50%, something like that. Because then it's a union culture and people go into that situation knowing that. But I think the gig economy is a huge invention by the bosses to try and split the workforce and to make more money for themselves. I mean, there's no insurance for gig workers. And I mean, we saw the campaign, how effective it was unfortunately in California last year. California passed laws to have employees, uh, gig employees considered to be uh, employees and get overtime and a minimum wage and guarantee. And they put it up for a referendum and it lost. I mean, I just can't figure it out. And yet, the company spent uh, Google and some of the other companies spent billions of dollars. But I mean, at some point, people got to overcome the barrage of, of uh, media. The same as we say in a organizing campaign you know, you got to listen in the captive audience and you're not really paying the attention. But I think that's a very, very good question. It's a complicated challenge that we got to take on because the gig economy is not going away. Balison Drake
0: asks, what if everyone stayed home for a month?
2: Great. Great, yeah. Well, I think one of the things, uh, Ballison that raises is they're really interesting the last years uh, since the pandemic started Uh, the word essential employee has come up. And I think this is particularly true when you have strikes by nurses or teachers or things like that, or public bus drivers, public transit, that um, it'd be great for many of us to stay home for a month. But if my phone went out, I don't want my Verizon guy home for a month. Um, So I think that uh, Stoppage of work, you know, refusal to work overtime. I mean, if you're talking about legislation, the 20-hour work week, I think, would be the way to go because you're going to find, after this COVID is over, a huge shift. The technology has taken over. You go now to a unionized supermarket up the street from us and they've got self-checkouts and people are using it and it's, it's destroying their jobs. No more toll takers in Maryland. It's all... Transport, and uh, so a shorter work we have been in the eight-hour work week the first labor day in 1886 they demanded been an eight-hour work day we're still at that that's crazy
0: well ups they went to the four-hour work day that was so they could work us faster Everybody uh, could keep up with the pace for eight hours okay that happened like 40 years ago so most ups warehouse workers it's a second job and they go there because they get benefits and then you know around here in syracuse they they work fast food they work we we've got the sort of sweatshop assembly coming back um you know those kinds of jobs or farmers you know they they work the farm and then they come in at night and unload or sort packages so they got benefits um so that's just another angle to that and then, I, you know, I was thinking of when you talk about the gig economy, you know, FedEx is a competitor of UPS, and we would talk to people who worked in the warehouse and like in Bessemer, a lot of them are young people that can sort of stand the rigors for a few years until, you know, they get carpal tunnel or a bad back yep. or they just get sick of it. Yep. Meanwhile, the drivers think they're in business for themselves. Right. And they will hustle and work stupid hours thinking they're getting ahead. And, you know, you come back a decade later, UPS drivers with the benefits and some protections, even though they get pushed a lot, are in better shape. But, you know, the problem is, like you're talking about, the labor movement has to be out in the community. Otherwise, you know, FedEx can pick people up and, you know, hustle them for a few years in the warehouse or a decade driving
1: yeah. Hey, guys. Unfortunately, my phone is dying here, and there's no way to charge it. So I, I might not, might drop off in a second. But this has been a very good
0: discussion. Well, we appreciate you coming on and, you know, sharing your reporting from Bessemer, and you know, your overall experience covering these, these struggles. Yeah.
1: And I hope, I hope folks go to paydayreport.com. They can sign up for our email list. They can donate. It's free. Um, check it out. Um, thanks so much for having me on again.
2: All right, Mike, thanks. Thanks. See you, Mike.
0: So, Jordan Story asks, economically and technologically, we're surpassing a need for basic labor. Engineers and techs will be the new workforce. I don't agree with that, but what do you think?
2: I don't agree with it either. Um, the next time that your toilet backs up, call it tech. Right. Uh, uh, there's still a lot of work, and and again, we'll see what the world looks like uh, after the COVID. The uh, will there still be fast food restaurants? Will you still go in there, um, have retail, have semi-skilled jobs? Uh, how are you talking about uh, sweat assembly shops and things like that? I mean, there's been a lot of uh, activity about moving some stuff back to this country, and Doing that kind of routine work. But um, I think retail is huge. I mean, you go to a place like Home Depot or Lowe's, they're not engineers, they're not techs. Um, but they. And,
0: and, and services. Yeah. You know, home health care, home health aids. Yes. That's huge. Long term care for seniors, uh, janitorial. I mean, some of these things cannot be replaced with machines.
2: That well, engineers- I have a friend in Minnesota who works for the service employees and they organize like 23,000 home health care workers across the state. And these are, are workers who, who got some legislation passed for them to be covered. There's no common workplace. You know, the idea that you're standing outside Bessemer and passing out leaflets and talking and worrying about the parking lot, that doesn't happen. But it's an essential, you know, society has changed and so kids are not taking care of their parents directly anymore and so the home healthcare workers is a huge very very important field we certainly saw that at the beginning of the covid the largest amount of covid uh, infections were in nursing homes and things like that where people just couldn't stay home so i think um, very important uh, jordan that engineers and techs get organized i mean there's a lot of talk at Google about different issues. Um, In fact, there were a very unusual um, labor board case recently where two women were uh, found that where the uh, Amazon was considered to have found the violated the National Labor Relations Act by disciplining them for putting something up on the company chat room about environmental policies of the company had nothing to do with what we would think of as a union. But it was concerted activity, and concerted activity is more than one. So it's there. I think engineers and techs, if they are the new workforce, need to be organized. Um, same as everybody else.
0: Uh, Lena Dell asks We need to expand our definition of the word work beyond just what makes money for a private sector employer. There's plenty of work to do, and many people working and not getting paid. And she puts the hashtag job guarantee. And, you know, I'm thinking of care work that particularly women do in households and extended families. That is essential, but uh, because they don't get income, sometimes they're stuck in relationships
2: they really need to get out of. Yeah. I think it's absolutely right. See, what Lana is doing is visualizing a whole different social structure, which is really great. And I think that's one of the failures of a lot of union organizing. We still think of private owners, a single workplace, a single workforce. We'll get a union. We'll get a contract, just like the old days. And the whole thing has gone way beyond that. And it's going to go much more beyond that. Uh, when this COVID settles because we've seen a huge increase, for example, in uh, working from home and, and what people can do, never going to a centralized workplace. And it's the shift that we'll see. For example, there's a issue here for the CWA workers at Verizon because of the COVID, they have been working from home, the outside techs. That is, they take their truck home and then they go off in the morning, go from the house, they don't go to the central garage. But right now, their time starts when they leave their house and go to the job. And if it takes them 45 minutes to get to the job, they're paid. Uh, Verizon has raised with the union that after the COVID is over, that the structure will continue, but their techs won't get paid till they actually get to the job. So it's a big uh, difference. But I think Lana is exactly right. This, this discussion could go on in many, many directions. Um, the real question is to ask each person, where do you work and what are you doing to organize on your job? You need to go beyond the discussion stage and really get into organizing.
0: Kay Pierce asks, as a tech worker, my job is isolated. A lot of us are contract workers. Or work in disparate locations slash remotely. How do we organize in such an environment? Is there any organization or person doing this work?
2: Let me answer the second part of that first, uh, Kay, that unions have not really started. There are a lot of groups that are uh, kind of uh, not asking for recognition as a union to organize people working in disparate locations. As I said, this kind of structure is going to be permanent when this COVID is over. We are seeing enormous losses, for example, uh, companies spending office space. I and mean, my nephew worked in New York City. His company spent 10 or 11 million dollars a year on rent in an office. They're all working remotely. But it's not going to happen again. The company's going to keep that money. So how do you do it? This is one where social media really can come in. And I think Zoom has been great because you are now able to, in effect, see each other as we're seeing each other now. You're not just a text or email message, but you gotta get a sense of personalities. And so you have to be proactive. You have to say, okay, we wanna, all of us who work for X corporation and we're spread all over the city or the country or the state or however it is, what do we want? Do we want guaranteed hours? Do we want health insurance? Do we want higher pay? Do we want um, set hours? One of the things we have seen for a lot of these uh, remote workers now is that the company expects them to be available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You know, leave your phone on because it's three in the morning somebody, and it's global and people will call from India or wherever. So, um, Kay, I would say to you, two things. One is you start organizing, you said, is there an organizing person doing this work? You be that person, because there aren't really uh, that I'm aware of real groups. Figure three things that you want out of your job that you're not getting. And then start raising that with co workers. And however, if you ever come together personally, fine, if not, have a happy hour, <clears throat> call them up on zoom, Say, hey, let's all get together and have a drink and talk about our situation at work, which is exactly what we do in an organizing campaign. And one of the things I, I have a, a let me go back to Kay that uh, in my booklet on organizing the pandemic um, and an article I did for a, a publication called Workplace Leader, this whole idea of isolation now is really important for a union to deal with. Because the psychological consequences of people not going to work and not being with their coworkers can be very, very important, and union officers need to realize that a social that unions are in many ways a social service. Uh, if you're on the job and you see people having problems, I mean, if a steward comes and will say, "Well, tell me you've got a problem with your kids or your wife or your whatever, father-in-law." And, You do that function. Union is a family and not just wages and hours and benefits. Um, And you do social activities. And so I think this question, though, of people being isolated is huge. And it's an enormous amount of pressure. We've seen a a large increase in domestic violence here in the Baltimore area. It's husbands and wives together who are not always. Normally, together, you know, the wife will work first shift, the husband works second, they're not around. Uh, Now you have children at home trying to do remote learning. There's all kinds of uh, new tensions. And there are no social services for that, really. So the union needs to do that. And I think, Kay, you've brought up some really good points. But I think what you need to do is get your head out and figure okay, what would you do to change that? And who else in your workforce can you talk to about it? And uh, give us a call in a couple of weeks and let us know how you're doing.
0: Austin Whiteside asks, "Is there any gig worker unions or any way someone who works for a company like DoorDash or Lyft could rally with local workers and make complaints or plans?" I, I think
2: that's similar to the question you just answered. Well, there, there are erratic. Occasionally, gig worker unions, they come and they go. And, and, uh, Austin, um, I don't know off the top of my head any who do. Uh, Obviously, if you have a DoorDash or Lyft, it would be a great opportunity for the Teamsters to come into a whole different industry if they wanted to. Um, I guess the, the same thing I would say to you, Austin, is, can you contact some of your other co-workers if you're working for doordash or Lyft or something like that and create a group of, of yourselves and talk about what you want to do and then you can find support locally and uh, as i said there's a whole list of groups that kind of come and they go as far as organizing uh, contingent workers or contract workers like doordash or gig workers and uh, it's a it's a major challenge that we got to take. And I don't want to sound like I'm avoiding the answer, but the, the answer is I don't know. I can't say to you, oh, call this number. This is a group that you want to talk to. And maybe somebody who's watching today who's involved in a group like that uh, could post their number and their contact information. Yeah,
0: put it in the chat. Well, we've been going over an hour, and we usually last about an hour on these podcast um, do you have any closing thoughts you'd like to share with folks uh, you haven't had a chance to speak to yet
2: you talking to me yeah the only thing I would say to you and I don't have the the picture right now but if you people would say this is a story I often tell when I do training I would go in a lunch room or something like that and someone would say I want to see someone from the Union and I always carried a mirror in my pocket. i take it out and I would hold it up to the person. I would say, you wanna see someone from the union? Here it is. And when I do trainings and do stuff online, I have a picture like that. You wanna see the union look in the mirror. I would say to each person who's listening, you wanna to start to have a union, start one. It starts with you. And this whole idea of talk often in I'm doing a labor history class we tell you world is divided into warriors and victims you're gonna be one or the other and so much of the discussion about workers today in the post-industrial economy is how we're victimized and we're on opioids and we can't find our way and all this is bad well we got to change that and you have to have the responsibility and the go get them to make things happen because if you're not going to do it it ain't going to happen
0: yeah you thought as along similar lines uh some of the better organizing drives or union activities one of the chances who is the union we are the union yeah, absolutely um, and you know people listening here may not be connected to union the odds are they're not but that doesn't mean you cannot be part of the labor movement right there are worker centers in most of our cities now dealing with uh Gig workers, immigrant workers, uh, you know, workers that the labor movement hasn't organized, which is a lot of people. So that's one place you can find people interested in these questions. Um, it depends on your city, but there are central labor councils that some have community programs you can be involved in. Uh, some of these councils have split into more progressive and more conservative wings, um, and there, you know, your the unions that are there. They have actions all the time, whether they're building trades or the service union or the Teamsters. There's probably something going on in your community. So uh, I think the point is don't wait for the unions, as such as they are, to come and organize your place of work or, you know, shops in your community. You got to be part of the solution. And we all got to. And
2: uh, You're either part of the problem or you're part of the It's always going to happen. What were you saying, Bill? You're either part of the solution or part of the problem. Exactly right. Well, I,
0: I thanks for coming on, Bill, and sure. thanks again to Mike Elk, and thanks for everybody who listened. And uh, we do these every Tuesday night at 8 o'clock Eastern time and often on Saturday at 3 o'clock. So we look forward to the next conversation. Have a good day.